The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll speak with Amy Willens about the earthquake in Israeli politics, the end of Bibi Netanyahu after 12 years, and a new governing coalition that includes, for the first time in Israeli history, an Islamist party as part of the government. We'll talk about what this might mean for Palestinians inside Israel and on the West Bank and in Gaza. But first, what does Joe Manchin want? Doesn't he want Democrats to have equal voting rights? For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached him today at home in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, John. It's good to be with you. Well, this week, our friends are furious at Joe Manchin or despairing about Joe Manchin because over the weekend, he declared he would not vote for the Democrats' big voting rights bill, the one that's called the For the People Act. And if it doesn't pass, it seems likely that Republicans will retake the House in the 2022 midterms and the White House in 2024. But before we talk about Joe Manchin, let's start with the Republicans and their new efforts to make it uh, harder to vote something they've been working on for decades, of course. But since Trump's defeat in 2020, they are no longer gambling on voter suppression to elect their candidates. Now they are writing laws that open the way for overturning results that go against them. This means rewriting the rules to make it easier for Republicans to win elections without winning the most votes. That's a radically new and frightening tactic, You've written about it for the nation. Texas is leading the way. Tell us about the bill in Texas. Well, John, the bill in Texas is scary. Um, and you and I, I don't know how many podcasts and conversations we've done with each other over the years, but it's pretty rare that I use the word scary. Generally, you know, I see this, this great battle between the left and the right and between corporate power and democracy as an ongoing fight. It's got a lot of unsettling components to it. 
but it's rare that I see something that is so glaringly dangerous as regards democracy that it could have repercussions, uh, not just for 2022 and 2024, but, but for the future. And that's really what's kind of hidden away in this Texas bill. Now, most of the attention to the Texas bill has been to the uh, over-the-top voter suppression strategies that are contained in it. And we shouldn't neglect that. I mean, this is coming sort of full circle on things we've seen Republicans doing for a long time. Of course, they're trying to make it harder to vote on Sundays when people do souls to the polls, to you know have enough polling places for people to vote early and you know, all of the things that they've done before. And that's that's all there. And, and it's one of the reasons why uh, you saw Texas Democrats walk out and try to stop this bill and actually do successfully stop it for at least a period of time. But hidden within the bill is a remarkable component that proposes to lower the evidentiary standard for overturning an election. Now, evidentiary standard is one of those terms that you hear lawyers throw around and judges. And uh, but what it basically uh, gets to is, you know, how much, what kind of facts do you have to put on the table in order to get a judge to uh, say, oh yeah, that that election doesn't count? Well, historically, you've had to put a lot on the table. It's it's been a very high requirement, uh, unless you're the U.S. Supreme Court de- dealing with the Florida recount in 2000. Uh, which even the U.S. Supreme Court said shouldn't be a precedent for anything else. (laughs) Um, But generally, it's been a high standard. And that high standard, that requirement that if you're saying there's been fraud, you have to show the fraud. You have to show the ballots. You have to have witnesses. You have to, you know, really confirm it beyond any reasonable doubt. That really saved us in 2020. Trump had a team of lawyers. They went into courts, dozens of courts across the country at the local, state, and federal level. They faced a lot of Republican elected and appointed judges. And yet, those judges said, no, you, you, can't, you can't overturn this election because you think something happened over there or you claim there was this kind of bad move over here um, because of two things. Number one, they, they actually were following the law as, it, as it's written. Number two, they knew they'd be overturned immediately if they kind of made up new law. So we were protected by the evidentiary standard in 2020. It was a big part of what tripped up a lot of Trump's strategies. What the Texas law proposes is to lower it down to a point where if a poll worker, for instance, a Republican poll worker comes in and says, yeah, I saw him doing some pretty shady things. I'm pretty sure they were, they were committing fraud there, right? And you say, well, Okay, there's maybe you saw something that's bad. You could accept that. And then the judge would say, well, how widespread do you think this fraud was? And if the poll worker or the witnesses say, oh, yeah, we think they were doing it, you know, thousands and thousands of, of examples of it. Well, yeah, we think it's enough to equal the amount of votes that was the difference between victory and defeat, right? That, that the margin of, of victory or defeat. Um, that's enough for a judge to throw the to throw the election out, or at least, and we should be very precise here, at the very least, to give standing to those who are making this objection. So people who in the past would have been thrown out of court now have a way to go into court and perhaps, perhaps even to prevail. Does that mean every judge will? No. I think that you might still 
there, there is a lot of judicial discretion. You might still have a judge who says, no, I've got to see some more. Um, you know, all these things get defined. And remember, this law hasn't been passed yet. So all that stuff's in play. But here's the bottom line, John. If this law was on the books in the battleground states in 2020, in the way that it's been written, in the way that it is proposed, and in the way I expect if Texas passes it, it will be spread out to other states, uh, there is a very much greater chance that the Trump campaign could have found a judge or judges to rule that the election was fraudulent, that it was invalid. Why that matters isn't necessarily because that would have stood all the way up through every test. It matters because then when you get to that congressional challenge, which you might see in 2024, um, you've got, instead of us being able to say, hey, every judge threw this out, everybody saw this as ridiculous, they're saying, no, 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 this is disputed in the courts. There are judges ruling one way, judges ruling the other way. Two things happen there that are important, John. One is that could potentially go to a very partisan Supreme Court, and you might end up getting a, a bad ruling there. That was the concern last time. Two, you then have a chance that state legislatures might jump in. Remember, under the Constitution, they can name their electoral college members. The Constitution allows that. And you might have a Republican legislature just simply say, hey, this is disputed in the courts. We run the risk of not having our electoral votes counted. It's our interpretation, not even a legal interpretation, now our legislative interpretation that Donald Trump won and give him the electoral votes. This is a recipe for tremendous chaos. And I guarantee you, if this is enacted in Texas, there'll be a dozen others and there'll be all the battleground states. And there's one other similar approach with slightly different strategy that has been passed into law in Georgia, which allows members of the state legislature or county commissioners or the state election board to request an investigation of a county's election superintendent. And if they conclude that the county is, quote, underperforming in elections, they can replace the election board. They can fire the people who maintain the list of registered voters. They can make changes in polling places. And they can change the people who certify county election results. In Georgia, this is very important because most of the Democratic votes come from a single county, Fulton County. They could declare that the, that the election officials there were underperforming and just replace them. Now... There is a way the Democrats could stop all of these radical changes. They could pass the For the People Act, which has passed the House and it's awaiting action in the Senate. But that's the one that Joe Manchin over the weekend said he won't vote for. Without his vote, it won't pass. Now what? Well, you spoke with Chuck Schumer for The Nation magazine. He says he's going to bring this up to a vote on the, in the Senate in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I guess one possibility that's being talked about is amending this act to something that would be more acceptable to Joe Manchin and that would focus on these most egregious threats. Uh, Congress could establish uniform rules for how to count votes, how to certify election challenges. Joe Manchin does say he would support he will support the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which, restores the federal oversight of elections that the Supreme Court removed a few years ago. 
even the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is not going to pass without filibuster reform. And Joe Manchin says he won't vote for filibuster reform. So that takes me back to my opening question. What does Joe Manchin want? And rather than just condemning him as a tool of Republicans, I thought we should talk a little bit about what are his politics? Where does he come from in the Democratic Party? He's not a tool of the Republicans. I've covered Joe Manchin for a long time. And I can tell you, you know, when you ask, what does Joe Manchin want? He wants us to be talking about him right now. <laughs> we're, he's, doing that. He's, we're doing our part. <laughs> got a bit of an ego. If Joe Manchin's office is the first to get me a press release. Uh, he is, you know, very available for those Sunday morning shows. He is never going to be the leader of the Senate the way that Robert Byrd was, one of his predecessors. Uh, but uh, he can perhaps be the John McCain of this time, right? The uh, outlier member of a party whose decision on how he goes on every particular issue becomes definitional in our politics. Why does Joe Manchin want that? Number one, as I suggested, he has got a bit of an ego. Number two, he represents a state that has swung politically. As recently as uh, you know, the 1980s, as an example, uh, West Virginia was so reliably democratic that when Mike Dukakis was, was losing places like California and Vermont, he won West Virginia, yeah. right? And that's yeah. what Joe Manchin came up in. He came up in that kind of politics. That is gone. It's over. West Virginia has a Republicans in all their top jobs. It has Republicans representing them in Congress. I mean, in many ways, Joe Manchin is the last Democrat standing at a higher level. There's local Dems there, but he at this higher level, he's he's a very uh, rare figure in that state. My sense is that he believes that if he makes himself a John McCain type figure, the outlier, the the renegade uh, legislator, that that might be enough to keep him viable in West Virginia. Uh, even if he does some things that go against where the Republicans are at. And, and to be quite clear, this is a guy who had, who did in fact vote to impeach Donald Trump. Yeah. So he's, he's, you know, he's got some space there to work in. And, and one of the things that I've seen that's interesting, by the way, I'm, I'm not here trying to defend Manchin. I think that what he should have done on the For the People Act, which is a broadly good piece of legislation, uh, and has a lot that addresses corporate power and all sorts of other things, what he should have done is, you know, be a leader and explain that to the people in West Virginia and say why he was going to back it. So that's where I'm at with this yeah. guy. But if he's yeah. put us in this position, then I, I give credit to the groups that are reaching out to him and meeting with him, including voting rights groups that are saying, OK, you have really caused us a problem here, a big problem. What are you going to do? What are you willing to do to try and fix it? Can we write something new? Can we come up with some sort of new model that makes it possible to enact uh, some protections against really the diminution of democracy, which, by the way, Manchin himself has talked about? So there's a space there for that discussion. But then you get to the deeper reality. And that is this discussion about the filibuster. His, uh, his refusal, and that of a number of other Democrats, to move on the filibuster is a, it's frankly the real crisis, at least in Washington, as regards our democracy. And here I'm working on a piece now that'll go up, you know, in the next few days about how Dr. King, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., dealt with 
um, the filibuster back in the 1960s. And it's important to understand that in the 1960s, when the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Act, when these pieces of legislation were passed, um, there was a filibuster threat. It was real. Uh, in fact, as recently as 1957, Strom Thurmond had filibustered a civil rights bill and it had been a real struggle to get it through. And that was in the days even when they still had the talking filibuster as opposed to the monstrosity that they have now where they don't even have to stand up and do anything. Um, and so King knew this was a threat. He knew it was a problem. He went to Washington and it, before the civil rights bill came up, he appeared on national television shows, uh, the Sunday morning shows. He went to the Senate, sat in the gallery. Uh, he did every interview he could. And basically what he said was this, if at this point, after everything we've been through, they try to use the filibuster, we will have to go to the streets. And he made it very clear that the filibuster itself would become a central issue in a mass mobilization extending from the civil rights and voting rights movement of that time. A lot of Democrats, including Southern Democrats, were clearly shaken by that. They took seriously that commitment by the leading advocate for nonviolent civil disobedience in the United States and a guy who was, you know, at that point, a monumental figure in our politics and in our public life. And they got through it without a serious filibuster problem. So we can talk and talk and talk about how to get inside Joe Manchin's head. We can talk about what we wish Joe Biden would do or what we wish Chuck Schumer would do. But I believe that we've gotten to the point where we have to take our advice from Dr. King. And that is to say that um, at a point when our democracy is threatened and when we have the PRO Act, which extends labor rights, when we have the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, so many other monumental pieces of legislation that are being stopped by a, an awful, absurd, non-constitutional structure that says, oh, you got to get 60 votes to make anything happen. Well, I think it's time to go to the streets. Mass mobilization around the filibuster issue, led by folks like Reverend Barber and uh, perhaps, perhaps even a former president of the United States named Barack Obama, could, could really be what's needed at this point to get Democrats to fully grow that spine. This doesn't involve Republicans. This involves 50 Democrats coming together and Kamala Harris saying the filibuster is done. But I'm telling you, if it doesn't happen soon, the damage that is done by our delay and by our neglect uh, could be irreversible. It's time to go to the streets. John Nichols, readamatthenation.com. John, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's great to be with you. Next up, the coming earthquake in Israeli politics. The fall of Netanyahu after 12 years as prime minister, who will be replaced by a coalition in which right-wing religious nationalists agreed to join with secular moderates and an Israeli Arab Islamist party. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She was the New Yorker's Jerusalem Bureau chief. She wrote a novel about Palestinians and Jews called Martyr's Crossing. And she's published in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the LA Times, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. We reached her today at home in Los Angeles. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Well, this unlikely coalition was provoked by one man 
Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So first we have to understand Bibi, as they call him, and why he has provoked such broad opposition. We're told he's just like Trump. He got elected by fostering a cult of personality. He's an authoritarian and a racist and a liar. He panders to the far right. But of course, in some ways, he's not like Trump. First of all, you have to say Trump is like Bibi because who was in power first? So Bibi's been in power for 12 years. Bibi was like that before Trump even appeared. Bibi knows Trump and he knows particularly the Kushner family with whom he was tight for a long time. And so, you know, naturally it comes to mind that he's like Trump. Yeah. But the biggest difference is that Bibi actually represents a huge chunk of the Israeli electorate. So if there weren't this handful of religious right parties right now sucking away votes from him, his Likud would probably have garnered far more than 30 seats in the Knesset in the last vote. But the split is this is the split in Israel. So that's the thing. Second, again, he's been in power for 12 years, unlike Trump, so that there is some serious Bibi fatigue in Israel (laughs) among natural supporters. You get to know a guy really well. Eh, You don't like him so much. This guy, there's a lot not to like. He's under uh, suspicion of corruption. There have been many cases brought against him. So he's in big trouble in that he resembles Trump, I guess. But he's seen by people like Naftali Bennett, who has worked closely with him and who is going to be the next prime minister under this new coalition as an obstacle to the rising right wing generation of politicians, especially Bennett himself. So BBC is a threat not only to the ambitions of new politicians, but to the actual right wing agenda itself that Bibi has thought for so long that he represents because of this growing Bibi fatigue. I think that his his personality has not managed to sustain the cult of his personality. I, I mean, he recently and immorally used the time honored method of keeping power. He started a war. Yeah. More than 200 Palestinians died. A big handful of Israelis died so that Bibi could keep his premiership. But they all died in vain because he's out. So that's not making anyone very happy on either end of the political spectrum in Israel. Yeah, that's the the one way in which Bibi has made Trump look good is that Bibi provoked a war to try to stay in power. Trump just provoked an attack on the Capitol. Very bad, but not quite as bad. He provoked an attack on democracy, but he didn't start World War III with North Korea in spite of his best attempts. Right, right. And we need from you a fast course on Israeli politics. Of course, it's a parliamentary system with lots of little parties that are impossible for Americans to keep track of. No clear majority for a while now. We know the two great historic forces in Israel since its founding have been the labor movement and the religious right. How is this working today? Well, I mean, it's a much more fragmented society, and that is reflected in its parliament. And then the parliament creates each government, each successive government. You've had, I believe, four elections in two years because Bibi has not been able to keep hold of power properly. His his own coalitions keep fragmenting, and then elections are called. So what happens is it after every election in this parliament that's so fragmented with all these micro parties, you have wheeling and dealing to form a majority coalition and to gain the executive seat, i.e. the prime minister's seat. 
And as we've seen in the current coalition, it's not always the biggest party in a group that gets the prime minister's seat. But instead, it can be a little party whose support was most needed and possibly least likely, like uh, Naftali Bennett's Yamina party, which is even farther to the right than Bibi Netanyahu's, but is going to be head of what is perceived as a secular moderate coalition because its majority is secular moderate. But the people who gave it the power to have a majority in the Knesset are the little religious right parties. They're not all religious, but they're all right, except for the Islamist party. I learned from reading Haaretz, our favorite Israeli newspaper, that this new prime minister-to-be, Naftali Bennett, even though he heads a right-wing religious party, is not really very religious and hasn't always been very right-wing. He doesn't quote the Torah. He doesn't quote the rabbis. He's supposedly a settler leader, but doesn't live in a West Bank settlement. He lives in an upper-class, upper-middle-class Tel Aviv suburb. Uh, He's belonged to five different parties since he entered politics. He should be from New Jersey because that's the kind of politician he is. He's fluid. He's fluid. Uh, I was very interested to learn that his parents are Americans who grew up in the 60s. They were 60s people in San Francisco. They were secular Jews. They were anti-war activists, but they moved to Israel after the 67 war and gradually became more and more religious and right-wing. Bennett, as you said, is the younger generation on the Likud side. He grew up after the 67 war, which means his life was much more comfortable, much more middle class. He didn't have the existential fears of the founding generation. So even though he's more right wing and more religious than Netanyahu, really he's not, we are told anyway by Haaretz, he's not really that religious and maybe not even that right wing? Well, we're trying to normalize him here in Haaretz. Haaretz is a secular, moderate left paper. They want it to be okay. They want the coalition to succeed. Um, And they even whether want or not want, they come at it from that point of view. I I would say that what Bennett seems the most like to me is uh, less than a religious zealot, he seems like a super nationalist. And that's yeah. what I think he is. And that's what that generation coming from that kind of background can be if they move to Israel. I mean, that does yeah. tend to harden them in their um, support of the nation. Um, I disagree with you that, that that generation doesn't have the same uh, existential concern about the state that the original Um, fighters for Israel had. I think that the war of the Palestinians against the Israelis gave uh, nationalists and uh, ammunition to uh, feel fear and insecurity in ways they probably didn't need to because they were so well supported and underwritten by the United States, the greatest power on earth at the time, at least. But in any case, he's going to be the first prime minister of Israel to wear a kippah or yarmulke, as we used to say, all the time, like you're going to see him. And to a lot of people, he's going to look a lot more like a straight up, as my children would say, Jew than Netanyahu does, because he's going to have a a black keep on his head. And he is far right, 
what, you know, what's the distinction in the existential question for Israel between Bennett and Netanyahu, except that Bennett seems to be more rational, not have a cult of personality yet, maybe after 12 years. And, and the religious right, we see them as embattled against their ideological enemy, the secular left. But I think it's important not to forget that there are political rivalries and and Likud is kind of a monster that's gulped up all the power. And if you're not in good with Likud on the right, then you have a problem. These little guys want some of that, these little parties. Bennett, as I said, would not be PM in a Likud coalition. Never. So we know who would be, who would be a minister now if Likud had formed a proper coalition, which it was incapable of doing, uh, it would be Bibi again. So what interest does Yamina or Yisrael Batenu, Avigdor Lieberman's party, still have in Likud? They don't have an interest in Likud. And there is always the chance that the coalition deal with the secularists will not hold and that Bennett will somehow continue as premier beyond his two allotted years, although I don't see how that can happen. But Israeli politics is as much of a snake pit as New Jersey's, as I said, and they're all wheeling and dealing in there still to this very moment. And we have to talk about the biggest earthquake in the history of Israeli politics, an Israeli Arab Islamist party entering the government with the kicker that it's part of a coalition headed by the religious right. This is the first time since the creation of Israel that Palestinians, Muslims, will be part of the government. You have explained that this was necessary, a necessary deal for these smaller parties to get their majority in the Knesset. But let's look at the Palestinian side. Aren't the Islamists selling out? Mansour Abbas is head of the Islamist Party of Israel. And, of course, he's being accused of selling out by Hamas in particular. Abbas is... Isn't he betraying the Palestinian cause to join with the far right, the people who have denied Palestinian rights, who've seized their houses, who've settled the West Bank? First of all, let's say why the party is in this coalition, because they needed four more votes. And Ram, the name of this party, has four more votes. So they needed them to gain that coalition majority in the Knesset and thus the prime minister's office and power. So, that's it. They couldn't find anyone else. They took them. So now let's get to the question of sellouts. OK, are they selling out? You know, we say Islamist party. And then for the Israelis, we say religious party, far right religious party. So this is a religious party. And let's not call them Islamists because then we get confused. Did they fly airplanes into the World Trade Center? What's going on? We get very confused. So they're not that. This Islamist party has been electing people to the Knesset for, what, 20 years, forever. It's, it's a well-entrenched party. And they're realists. And they, they know the Israelis. These are Palestinian Israelis, first of all, or Palestinians who live in Israel and their parents before them. Many of them longer than a lot of the Jews in the Knesset, by the way. And their constituency is not really Gaza or even the West Bank, although, of course, they feel a brotherhood, as you said, a Muslim brotherhood with those people, a Palestinian brotherhood, a national brotherhood with them. But their constituency is the Palestinian citizens of Israel. And they're more like pothole legislators than like statesmen right now. And they may make statesmen like statements, but 
just the way the whole coalition wants to present itself as a coalition that's going to work on infrastructure and bridges and budgets and, you know, housing and housing and health care. That's what these guys want to do for the Palestinian neglected Palestinian citizens of Israel. But that said, of course, it's important for Palestinians everywhere to consider what the inclusion of this party might mean. And I think what it means is that Israel constituted one way this way needs them. It needs all of a sudden it needs its Arab citizens. You saw Netanyahu understand that during the last election. He started campaigning for the first time in the Arab areas of Israel. So anyway, it's not so surprising that a government in Israel would be composed of the two extremes with a large pile of, quote, moderates in the middle, because that's what Israel is like. Abbas's party does call for evacuating Israel's West Bank settlements. It favors establishing a Palestinian state with a capital in Jerusalem. It argues for giving Palestinian refugees the right of return to Israel. So in all those ways, it's not selling out the Palestinian cause. And maybe I'm a member of that party all of a sudden. (laughs) I listen to you detail their platform. But, you know, they're also in a coalition with the Israeli government now. It's going to be hard, but they also want that infrastructure in Israeli Arab towns and they want housing and they want the policing of organized crime, which is a big problem in those areas. So I think we have to say they have, you know, they have two two sides of their head, but it doesn't make them two faced. They're thinking about two major things for for the place where they live. So the Islamist party that has joined the government is doing this for Palestinians in Israel not for Palestinians in Gaza. What does this new government mean for Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank? Is there going to be any change in the blockade? Is there going to be any restrictions on expanding settlements? Is there going to be any effort to revive the peace process? We don't know yet because we don't know what were the encouragements offered to this party by the coalition to get them to join. Easily they could have said, we've been out of power forever. We can stand to be out of power for another cycle till the next election runs its course, till the next election happens. They didn't need to join, but perhaps they were given certain kinds of encouragement about policy or, or about the pothole issues. We don't really know. My guess is Palestinians who are very political and understand pretty well what's going on for them can't be that ecstatic about the Hamas response to Israeli provocation, which then led to Israeli bombings and no movement forward. And I think they'll adopt a wait and see policy about this this party in the in the Israeli government. But For the Palestinians, I think their real response to the coalition taking away power from Bibi is like, meh, they're still Israelis. They still hate us. We still don't have our homeland. None of the policies that Ram stands for is going to really be the policy of the Israeli government. So more of the same, more obfuscation on behalf of Israel in front of the world community because Israel wants to be left alone and go about its own policies. I don't think the Palestinians feel any great surge of optimism with Bibi out of power. One last thing. 
This is a coalition in which the bigger party, the moderate secular party, is headed by a guy named Lapid. He's supposed to, they're supposed to rotate the prime ministership, and he's supposed to take, become the prime minister in two years. And he has always favored a two-state solution. He wants to open regional talks. He wants talks with the Palestinian Authority. He wants a land deal for the West, on the West Bank. Uh, he wants a separate Palestinian state and a separate Jewish state. But he won't be prime minister for two years. And, of course, this is a very unstable coalition that Bibi is going to be trying to destroy. In the meantime, let's talk about the likelihood of this coalition surviving for two years until Lapid can take the office he's been promised. Well, first of all, it would be mistaken to think that Lapid can do what he wants once he's prime minister. Yes. Um, although having the having the premiership and the majority is good, and that's why he had to give it to um, Bennett first. Will he get the prime minister's seat in two years? If Bennett can last for two years, I believe that Yair Lapid will be the next prime minister of Israel. If there's another war for some reason, I don't know. I don't think Bibi, if he hasn't been able to stop this coalition from being sworn in, which I believe they will be sworn in this week. I don't think he can break up this thing. I don't know if he's going to be the head of Likud. I don't know what power he's really going to wield. Amy Willens, our expert on Israeli politics. Amy, thanks for helping us today. I hope I have. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Music